So the reading comes from Micah chapter 1 and 2. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, listen, earth and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look. The Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? Is it not Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will be again be used. Because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For Samaria's plague is incurable. It has spread to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Beth Ophrah, roll in the dust. Pass by naked and in shame, you who live in Shaphir. Those who live in Zanan will not come out. Beth Ezel is in mourning, it no longer protects you. Those who live in Moros writhe in pain, waiting for relief because disaster has come from the Lord, even to the gate of Jerusalem. You who live in Lashith, harness fast horses to the chariot. You are where the sin of daughter Zion began, for the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Therefore you will give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath. The town of Aksib will prove deceptive to the kings of Israel. I will bring a conqueror against you who live in Marashah. The nobles of Israel will flee to Adullam. Shave your head in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourself as bald as as the vulture, for they will go from you into exile. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. Therefore, the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly for it will be a time of calamity. In that day, people will ridicule you. They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possessions is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. Therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. 
Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will overtake us. Ye descendants of Jacob, should it be said, does the Lord become impatient? Does he do such things? Do not my words do good to the one whose ways are upright. Lately my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my children from their children forever. Get up, go away, for this is not your resting place, because it is defiled, it is ruined beyond all remedy. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the prophet for this people. I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kate. That was a very big reading, so I really appreciate you doing all of that and all those hard names as well. Well, sometimes opening up a book from the Old Testament prophets can feel very foreign. We've just been doing a series on Romans and this is a big switch, which is why I wanted all of the readings read so you can sort of let it wash over you a little bit. There's all those names and references and the flow can be very confusing. It's a bit like watching a foreign movie. You can kind of follow the storyline, but you're kind of missing little details. My son Sasha is learning German and he's trying to listen to German music and watch German shows to familiarise himself with the language. And at first it felt a bit alien, but as he grows in his language skills and competency, his appreciation for the music and the shows grows too. But the encouraging thing about the Old Testament is that it's the same God and people are more or less the same. So as we familiarise ourselves with the book of Micah, certain themes will appear that don't feel far too removed from today. We may actually find it extremely relevant, which is why I love the Old Testament prophets so much. There's so much in these chapters um, to appreciate and to enjoy that it's hard not to preach on this for hours, but I won't. This is because it's the same God as the God that we worship and people are the same. And God's ways of working with people are the same as they've always been. There's so much we can learn from these sections of the Bible. Micah is a prophet speaking in the 8th century. He's writing at the same time as Isaiah and Hosea and some of the other prophets. He's from the southwest of Judea. There's Israel in the north and Judah in the south and they're both at this time prosperous and affluent. Their days of being slaves in Egypt are long past. But this has led the people of God to trust in themselves and their hearts have strayed far from God. And the gap between the rich and the poor is widening and there is economic injustice and oppression as we shall see. God's people have kind of been acting like teenagers when their parents are away for the weekend. 
having a party. They take advantage of his perceived absence. They throw out the rules. They indulge their cravings. They do what they like. They look out for themselves and they bend the rules and don't care about anyone else. God is not at the centre of their heart and their worship. He's been displaced by the idols of their heart. So in Micah, God confronts the people of God with three oracles recorded in, in, in Micah. And we see, uh, we see this in um, chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 6, verse 1. They're the, sort of the three brackets. These each begin with the same Hebrew word, which can be translated hear or listen. So we begin with, hear you peoples, all of you, listen, earth, and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. And then the second bracket from chapter 3. Then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice? And then the final one, chapter 6. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. These are the beginnings of three covenant lawsuits that God is laying against his people. And God calls for witnesses to the trial of Samaria, the city of Israel, the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem, the city of David in Judah, the southern kingdom. And they're accused of breaking the covenant that they have made with God, that they made back in Exodus. They've grown complacent, and God is sending them a wake-up call. The book of Micah is written to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. God wants those who are afflicted to know that he cares about their oppression. God cares for his people. And in the repeated passages throughout the book of Micah, we see passages of hope, where God is a shepherd who gathers up his flock. And for the complacent and comfortable, God sends affliction to disrupt their selfishness and idolatry. He wants them to remember their identity and redemption that he has won for them and that his grace is not something to take for granted. Sometimes as a parent, I need to provide firm boundaries and point out when behaviour is not acceptable. I do this out of love because I don't want my child hurting others or taking advantage of my kindness. But at other times, their conscience is sensitive and I need to be gentle and gracious and I don't want to condemn them or squash them and I don't always get that balance right. But the book of Micah is a mixture of judgement and hope. It's meant to lead us to know God's character better and to live in response to his holy love. Andy Judd's summary of Micah the other day was There is hope, but only through judgment. There is hope, but only through judgment. All these themes we see highlighted in the first two chapters of Micah. And we see that there's three stages to this. God points out their disobedience. He warns them of the disaster to come. 
and he points to the way of deliverance. So firstly, disobedience. What is their disobedience? Well, God's people have broken their covenant with him. In chapter 1, we see that they have practised false worship. They have turned to idols and refused to listen to God's word. And in chapter 2, we see how that's played out in their communities. A lack of love of God is in turn expressed through a lack of love for their neighbour. There is greed and exploitation. Land barons have been manipulating the legal system for their own gain and practising extortion and defrauding people of their ancestral land. Christopher Wright, in his book, Living as the People of God, describes these acts of injustice as a spiritual thermometer. He writes this, The economic sphere is like a thermometer which reveals both the spiritual temperature between God and Israel and also the extent to which Israel was conforming to the the social shape required of her in consistency with her status as God's redeemed people. So the greed and economic inequality isn't, isn't isolated from their idolatry, but it's actually symptomatic of their hearts and their lack of love and faithfulness to God. And traditionally, the evangelical church hasn't always held on to this truth. You see, biblical justice is rooted in the character of God. Here's a couple of examples. From Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. He's the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Or Psalm 11, verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. God's character is that of holy love. Thus his love is a holy love and his holiness is a loving holiness. God's love is for everything he made. He cares for this world, its people, its land, its animals. And God's holy love is particularly bent towards restoration and redemption He raises up those who are weak and lowly and he gives them honour. This is God's restorative justice. Yet his holy love also cares about acts of injustice, which is seen through his retributive justice. He punishes evildoers and does not ignore sin. This is his holy reaction to evil. As Leon Morris says, It is the love of God for us that leads him to be so hostile to our sin. If he loved us less, he would not care about it. Today in our world, different sides of politics align themselves with different foundations of justice. One side focuses on personal responsibility and individual sin and the other more on corporate or systemic systemic sin. But justice is a complicated matter. 
For a controversial example, pro-lifers may consider their activism as justice for the unborn, whereas pro-choices are advocating for reproductive justice. Both believe that they're fighting for justice. Neither thinks that they're fighting for injustice, but they have different ideas about what that justice looks like. And secular theories of justice tend to oversimplify the complexities of human life and they don't have a solid foundation to justify why their theory is right. As Christians, our understanding of justice comes from the very heart of God. It's rooted not so much in a system of beliefs or a code of ethics, a do or not do, but it's the outworking of the very character of God and lived out as an expression of our worship and gratitude to his mercy to us. We've seen this in Romans, haven't we? As we've looked through the, the final chapters of Romans, how worship is expressed through right living. And Christopher Wright, again, expands on the connection between worship and justice. He writes this, The prophetic message about economic justice and injustice did not stem from a general concern for human rights, nor from advancing ethical sensitivity. It was not even merely an economic issue. It was deeply spiritual. Anything which threatened a household's economic viability or drove them out of secure tenure of their portion of land was a threat to, its secure mem- to their secure membership of the covenant people. To lose one's land was more than economic disaster. It struck at one's very relationship with God. So losing their land wasn't just about economic justice. The land is God's and given as an expression of his blessing. Now God's very own people are scheming about ways that they can squeeze smaller landowners off their land. Perhaps a husband had died and a land baron sees an opportunity to claim it for himself. Or perhaps someone is behind and alone. Not only are they coveting their neighbour's land, the very thing that's prohibited in the Ten Commandments, they're also acting in ways that would lead to a Jew becoming indebted as a bondservant and preying on the powerless. It brings to my mind situations of elder abuse where an elderly person may be reliant on someone for care and may be pressured into signing over property or powers of attorney. It also reminds me of the ways in which large mining companies have failed to properly obtain consent from traditional landowners and have as a result damaged sacred Aboriginal heritage sites because the laws didn't provide proper protections. Wherever someone is vulnerable and knowingly manipulated, God sees and he stands with the one who is oppressed. As we read in chapter 2, verse 8, Lately my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. God identifies with the poor and the oppressed. 
Those who harm them become God's enemy. But the greedy, we see, have turned away from God and his word and seek only voices that will affirm their white-collar crimes. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Well, Micah calls these sorts of prophets liars and deceivers. They tell half-truths and preach a cheap grace that doesn't lead to repentance. As Micah says in chapter 2, verse 11, if a liar and deceiver comes and says, I'll prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the prophet for this people. Sounds very Australian, I think. (laughs) We need to remember that God cares about how we live. Jesus said this, Woe to you Pharisees, because you give a tenth of your mint, rue and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. Justice is at the heart of God. As a side note, we've noted in our discussions about the inner north about how justice is a local priority for them. Sadly, our society um, does not think that justice and the church are synonymous. And I think that that should lead us to repentance. The purpose of God's community is, as we've seen, right from the beginning until now, to be an expression of God's blessing and justice in this world. It's not an optional extra, but it's part of our identity. Our orthodoxy, so that's our right worship and belief, also being straight or correct, is integrally linked with our orthopraxy, which is our right actions and conduct. This means that we may do acts of social justice alongside someone who's not a Christian, but we do it for very different reasons. Our mercy flows from God's mercy towards us and from God's character of holy love and that everyone is God's image bearer and we mustn't lose sight of the theological basis for why we do justice. That's really important. And there's a book called Becoming a Just Church by Adam L. Justine and Dennis Edwards, uh, which is helpful on this, which you can see up the back. Becoming a Just Church, Cultivating Communities of God's Shalom. So, we've seen the disobedience of God's people. Well, secondly, disaster. Because of their refusal to listen to God's word and their spiritual idolatry, God comes near. Now, normally that would be a positive thing, but here God comes near in judgment. So in chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, we read this. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, 
because of the sins of the people of Israel. This disaster has come from the Lord, verse 12 says. And Micah uses a series of word associations to describe the loss that God will inflict upon them. There's different locations which sound like various consequences and you can see that in your Bible there. Samaria will become like a heap of rubble, it says in verse 6, and Judah is threatened exile in verse 16. In chapter 2, God turns the tables on them. They have been up planning iniquity all night, it says in chapter 2, verse 1. And they have the indecency to carry it out in broad daylight. Therefore, in verse 3, God says that he is planning disaster against them, of which they can't save themselves. And they can no longer walk proudly around. God is going to humble them. God is a God of justice and he cannot and will not overlook their sins. They drove people from their homes and now God says to them in chapter 2 verse 10, get up, go away, this is not your resting place because it is defiled, it is ruined beyond all remedy. Just as when God gave Adam and Eve the land, and told them to care for it and bless them, but they sinned and seized what did not belong to them, so God ejected them from the Garden of Eden. So now God sends the people of Israel away from the promised land. There's a relief in the British Museum showing some of this, depicting the siege of Lashish by the Assyrians. There should be some photos behind me. So this... Um, this frieze depicts all little stories of of the siege. We can see them building the ramp up the the wall, the embankment, um, with arrows and, and, yeah, trying to bombard that. Another one, I think. Yeah, you can see them carrying off the people away. Um, It's quite gruesome. There's some pictures of people being impaled and being skinned alive and all sorts of stuff, but... I haven't got those ones there. <laughs> but we know that all of Samaria was destroyed. This happened. It was never recovered. And 20 years later, they come for the south and they besiege Jerusalem. But because of Micah's warning, King Hezekiah prayed to God and God rescued them miraculously. So God's judgment in history... Well, today, God's judgment is not as clear-cut. We can't point directly to circumstances or nations and say that this event of destruction was caused by this sin. Romans 1 tells us that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. God gave us over to our sinful desires, but there will come a day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God takes sin seriously. He cares about injustice. He will not ignore idolatry and oppression. Finally, though, with God, there is hope after judgment. The third point, deliverance. And we turn to chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. I will surely gather all of you, Jacob, 
I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. What's interesting is that God takes the initiative. He has scattered them and now he gathers them up. In the beginning of chapter 1, we're confronted with a picture of the sovereign Lord, the king who is over everyone and everything. He treads on the heights of the mountains. Now we get a picture of God as the shepherd king. This time he comes with mercy. He is the one that saves them. He is the one who opens the way and goes before them. All is not lost. God gathers up the remnant and leads them to safety. He is not finished with his people. After judgment comes hope and deliverance. God is always working to turn his people back to him, to forgive their sins and to gather them into his pasture. Psalm 78 describes God like this. But he brought his people out like a flock. He led them like sheep through the wilderness. He guided them safely so that they were unafraid. But the sea engulfed their enemies. And so he brought them to the border of his holy land, to the hill country his right hand had taken. He drove out nations before them and allotted their lands to them as an inheritance. He settled the tribes of Israel in their homes. This is God's heart, to rescue his people from their enemies and to bring them to be with him so that they can flourish. Jesus describes himself exactly in these terms in John chapter 10. Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Here we see the heart of God. This is where justice and mercy meet. Jesus rescues his sheep from those who would seek to harm them. Instead, he lays down his life for the sheep. He takes our place as he atones for our sin by taking the wrath of God in our place. God's holy love refuses to ignore our sin whilst refusing to leave us to its consequences. God's holiness demands that God must punish sin and his love demands that he does not abandon his people. Both are satisfied in the atonement. As we've seen, knowing God's holy love should change the way we live. How we live reflects who
who and what we worship. God takes injustice seriously, but he offers a way of deliverance. This is comfort for the afflicted and will afflict the comfortable. As we've dived into Micah today, we've seen the heart of God, a heart of holy love, of justice and grace. And we've seen that he sees and exposes what's in our hearts. The story of God's people is one of disobedience, disaster and deliverance. May our lives express the heart of God, his mercy and his justice as we live our lives in response to his deliverance. Amen.